Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome back to Talk Nation Radio Peter Kuznick, who is professor of history at American University in Washington, D.C., and author of Beyond the Laboratory, Scientists as Political Activists in the 1930s America. He's co-author with Akira Kimura of Rethinking the Atomic Bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japanese and American Perspectives. He is co-author with Yuki Tanaka of Nuclear Power and Hiroshima, The Truth Behind the Peaceful Use of nuclear power, co-editor with James Gilbert of Rethinking Cold War Culture. In 1995, Peter Kuznick founded American University's Nuclear Studies Institute, which he directs. In 2003, he organized a group of scholars, writers, artists, clergy, and activists to protest the Smithsonian's celebratory display of the Enola Gay. He and filmmaker Oliver Stone have co-authored the 12-part Showtime documentary film series and the book, uh, both titled The Untold History of the United States. Peter Kuznick, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio. Great to be back with you, David. Uh, glad you're here. And you are also just back recently from from Okinawa. And, and since your return, they have elected a new governor. Uh, what were you doing over there, and what's the state of affairs over there? Well, I was there to receive an award for a 2014 action that we had taken in support of the anti-base movement in Okinawa. And that was a statement by 103 scholars and activists uh, supporting the anti-base movement. We recently released a statement by 100 and, what was it, 134, I think, uh, scholars and activists, a new statement in support of the anti-base movement. And that just came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, so, but I was brought over to Okinawa by Ryukyu Shimpo, which is the main one of the two. Okinawa's got two major newspapers. Ryukyu Shimpo is one of them, and uh, they'd given us an award for the 19th to 2014 action of the 103 scholars and activists. So I went over there to receive that award and also to do a big symposium and. Yes, again, to lend support to the activists there. You know, they, they are really on the front line of the fight against U.S. bases globally. And uh, the situation there is that, uh, that about 65% of the land mass used for American bases in Japan is located in Okinawa. And Okinawa only is less than 1% of the total land mass of Japan. So uh, 20% of Okinawa is currently taken up with American bases. And this has been very controversial for years, partly because of the rape and murder of young women by American troops and a lot of crime committed by the Americans, as well as accidents, uh, helicopters crashing into schools. But the most dangerous base was the one, the Futenma base in Ginawan City, and so they reached an agreement to close the Futenma base. The United States insisted that it be moved elsewhere inside Okinawa, and they chose the Hinoko. Uh, Hinoko is a very rural, pristine, beautiful part further north in Okinawa. And in order to relocate the base there, they have to fill in Ora Bay, 
So it's having a devastating effect on nature. And the people in Okinawa are just fed up with all these American bases. So they've been protesting. They're out there on the front line. Uh, when Hatoyama, the former prime minister, got elected, uh, he ran on the basis of closing the Futenma base and not letting it be relocated to Hinoko. But Obama intervened and said that the base has to go to Hinoko, and basically Obama crushed Hatoyama, which is really tragic, because Hatoyama was the first of the Japanese Democratic Party candidates to get elected. And it looked like politics overall in Japan was shifting. For decades, the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, had been dominating Japanese politics and was the close ally of the United States. In fact, the Americans, after the occupation, helped set up the LDP, establish it in the first place. And some of the people who we associate with that, like Kishi, who was uh, Abe's uh, uh, grandfather, uh, was, one, uh, was one of the founders. Kishi was a Class A war criminal, but the United States let him off partly because they wanted to use him, and they used him very well. They forced they, Kishi was uh, largely responsible for forcing through the defense treaty called AMPO, in 1960, after which he was ousted from office because of the way he did it. So this is all to get back to the, the base in Okinawa. Uh, so, but Obama crushed Hatayama, uh, which is tragic because it effectively undercut the uh, JDP. And now we've got Abe and the right-wingers back in power in Japan, and there's really no significant opposition movement in Japan to them now. So the uh, anti-base movement has been fighting doggedly against the relocation of the base. The former governor, Onaga, was elected on an anti-base platform. Sadly, he died in August, this past August. And there was just an election yesterday for the new governor of Okinawa. This was a crucial election. The LDP back candidate was a man named Sakima. The, uh, the anti-base candidate was Denny Tamaki. And the Tokyo government threw in as many resources as they could muster to make sure that Sakima won. They've been giving bribes to the Okinawans to allow the base. They sent their stars, including Koizumi's son, to come to Okinawa, and other LDP officials all came to Okinawa to support uh, Sakima. But, and everybody thought it was going to be a close election. It revolved around the base issue, and Tamaki actually won overwhelmingly, 55% of the vote to 44% of the vote. This was a huge victory for the anti-base movement internationally. As you know, David, there, the United States has more than 800 bases, military bases around the world. No other countries have anything like that. China, our major rival, has got one base in Djibouti. Uh, so, and no other countries have, have anything approaching what the United States has. So if we want to strike a blow against militarism internationally, then we've got to think about what the America's reach is, why the United States Special Forces operated in 142 countries last year, I think is the correct figure. And, you know, this, this Bolton approach to dealing with the world 
by force rather than by diplomacy and uh, and the trump and trump's going along with that <clears throat> it's created a, 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 probably the most dangerous world situation now certainly since the end of the cold war and in many ways since the cuban missile crisis as the tensions have been elevated alarmingly with both russia and china uh, and a number of uh, of areas around the world uh, but we know also in terms of iran still potentially korea there are very very many hot spots in fact, Peter, we World Beyond War, where I work and many other groups are putting together a, a gathering of anti-base activists from around the world, including Okinawa next month in Dublin, Ireland, uh, that I'll be going to. And uh, we'll be certainly talking about and hearing from activists in, in Okinawa, where some of them have been facing prosecution and prison now uh, for speaking up and acting on behalf of uh, of what appears to be the vast majority uh, of their fellow citizens of, of Okinawa. Yes, yeah, so uh, people, they, they, the ones on the front line, and these are, many of them are not young people, uh, have physical confrontations regularly with the police. Uh, the Abe government has not been willing to compromise on this. You know, the argument that they made, when I went there, in 2014. I went there for the first time in 2013 with Oliver Stone. And then I went back in 2014 with Joseph Gerson, who you know well. And uh, we met, uh, and Sadako Norimatsu, and we met with Al McElby, who was the consul general, the top U.S. official in Okinawa. And we asked him, why Okinawa? What is so essential about Okinawa? And he said, no piece of real estate is more strategically located than Okinawa. And he talked about it in terms of its proximity to China and its proximity to North Korea. And he insisted that the base had to be built in Okinawa, uh, the, that which is the official American line. The 15,000 or 25,000, I guess it's maybe 25, 28,000 American troops in Okinawa, half the American troops in Japan, are not going to be able to do anything up against uh, the huge, vast army, People's Liberation Army in China. But what Okinawa has been important for is not protecting Japan, although that's the official line. It's from Okinawa that the troops have deployed to Iraq, to Afghanistan, around the globe, to Vietnam in the past. Sure. So, uh, Okinawa is important to the United States, and, it's, and we talk also about its proximity to the East China Sea and the South China Sea. So if something's going to happen over the Senkaku de Ayu Islands, if something's going to happen over the Spratleys, you know, those troops from Okinawa are going to be probably involved in those kinds of operations. You know, at the same time, we've been pushing Japan to the right, uh, applauding them, applauding Abe for doing away with Article 9 or threatening to do with Article 9, do away with Article 9 the, the peace constitution in Japan, yes. for trying to make Japanese troops... Uh, get them to help support U.S. operations around the world, and even for encouraging Abe in his whitewash of Japanese history, which is a very, very big issue that Abe has been committed to since he took office. He knows that the Japanese people are probably the most pacifistic in the world, or right up there with uh, with uh, the most pacifistic in the world, 
And they were the victims, as you know, of America's two atomic bombs in World War II. They've been in the forefront of the anti-nuclear effort ever since, but Abe is trying to reverse all of that. And so generally this, you know, the global situation that you and I are so engaged in um, has really gotten worse. If we all of a sudden are going to put out this new edition of Untold History Book. And when we look at what's changed from 2012 to 2018, I mean, the world has gotten just much more, much darker, much more dangerous. Uh, U.S.-Russian and U.S.-Chinese relations have plummeted since then. They weren't very good, perhaps, in 2012, but they've gotten much, much worse since. Well, and a big part of how the world has moved in the wrong direction, and, and you're not moving the Japanese uh, government to the right, and neither am I, that the U.S. government is trying to do that. Uh, a big part of how this is done is by misinterpreting and selectively remembering the past. Uh, and I know that, that you and I personally have both uh, recently run into the endless problem of Americans misunderstanding Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You've done as much work as as perhaps anyone in the world on trying to correct this myth about the the ending of World War II. Do you think people are moving in in the right direction or not in terms of, uh, of rejecting the idea that it was defensible and necessary and beneficial to drop those atomic bombs? I think that maybe we're nudging the the world in the right direction on this. Um, the latest poll came out, I think it was May 2016, a CBS News poll showed that 43% of the people questioned said that the atomic bombings were the wrong thing to do, and only 42% said they were the right thing to do. In all the previous polls, or almost all the previous polls, it was usually around 55 to 45 or more in favor of the atomic bombings. So the fact that maybe this is an outlier poll, I haven't seen any since then, but when Oliver Stone and I go around the, the country and, and the world, and we have to choose one of our episodes of the documentary series to show, the one we've shown more than any other is our one on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Because we think that the myths surrounding the atomic bombing are crucial to this whole notion of American exceptionalism. If people understood that the atomic bombs were not only unnecessary, but, for example, seven, ad- the United States had eight five-star admirals and generals in 1945. Seven of the eight are on record saying the atomic bombings were either militarily unnecessary morally reprehensible, or both. We're talking about people like Eisenhower and MacArthur. MacArthur, for example, said that the Japanese would have surrendered in May, months before the atomic bombs, if we had told them they could keep the emperor. And, and, these are people, and these are people who said this before the fact as well, right? Not just after. Uh, well, they, um, some of them said it before the fact, but not publicly. And that and that's unfortunate. Right. Most of them said it after or said it just to their colleagues. Eisenhower claims that he told Secretary of War Stimson, he said, uh, uh, Stimson told me at Potsdam they were going to use it, and I didn't say anything because my war in the Pacific was over, my war in Europe was over. Said, then he asked my opinion, so I told him I was against it on two counts. 
first, the Japanese were defeated and trying to surrender. And secondly, I hated to see our country be the first to use such a horrible weapon. And that was Eisenhower. And Eisenhower, is, as you know, is the one who built up the nuclear arsenal. When Eisenhower took office in January of 53, the United States had little more than 1,000 nuclear weapons. When he left office, the United States had more than 22,000 nuclear weapons. When his budgeting cycle was finished, we had 30,000 nuclear weapons. So when Eisenhower criticizes in his farewell address the military-industrial complex, he knows what he's talking about because he helped create it. He was instrumental in creating it. Also, our PSYOP, you know, that the Joint Chiefs of Staff told Dan Ellsberg uh, that uh, if, if war started, the United States plan to unleash our entire arsenal almost immediately would result in 600 to 650 million deaths, the American weapons alone. We know about nuclear winter, and we know that it would have meant probably all life on the planet would have been extinguished. But, you know, this is the kind of insanity that you and I have been fighting against for so long. It seems that people give politicians credit when they say good things, no matter how many horrible things contradictory to what they've just said, they've done. So everybody loves to quote that part of that right. of that speech from Eisenhower and ignore the rest of the speech and all his other speeches and everything he did. <laughs> uh, even uh, President Obama, you know, gave a speech about getting rid of nuclear weapons someday, making a strong point that it wouldn't be anytime soon, uh, and went and spoke uh, in Hiroshima. Uh, and and yet he built up more nuclear weapons uh, and argued for the necessity of nuclear weapons and the necessity of war and and enlarged the military and launched new wars and new forms of war and so forth. And, and people, even after the fact, seem to remember him uh, as, as having been somehow against nuclear weapons because of something he said. Yeah, uh, Obama... Uh authorized the trillion-dollar modernization of every aspect of our nuclear arsenal. And what's the point of that? To make them more usable. That was Obama, that's Obama's real legacy. Uh, it, we know it's not a trillion now. The estimate is closer to $1.7 trillion it's going to cost us to make the means of killing uh, more efficient. Um, I was actually in uh, Hiroshima when Obama came. NHK, the Japanese national broadcaster, uh, brought me over there to do some shows. Uh, and I think what Obama did there was disappointing. I mean, I called for him to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki as soon as he got elected, and I wish he had done so. Uh, but when he went there and the things he did and the things he said, he spent more time at the American uh, military base, uh, Iwakuni, than he did in Hiroshima. Uh, he, in Hiroshima, he made that a very, very brief visit to the Atomic Bomb Museum, uh, and then he uh, made made that speech. But the speech was very disappointing. His opening line, I mean, it's just, it just filled with misrepresentations. His opening line, death fell from the skies in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. <laughs> death didn't fall from the skies. The United States dropped two atomic bombs. And he says there... Uh, we've got to look history straight, directly in the eye and tell the truth. 
Well, what is the truth, he says? He says, the World War II reached its brutal end in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's the prevailing myth. Yeah. That's what it we've been fighting about. World War II didn't end because of the atomic bombs. World War II ended because of the Soviet invasion. The United States had already firebombed 100 Japanese cities. The Japanese leaders had accepted that we could wipe out cities. Destruction reached 99.5% in the city of Toyama. What was new was not that we were wiping out cities. It didn't make much difference to the Japanese leaders if it was 200 planes and 10,000 bombs or one plane and one bomb. They accepted we could wipe out cities. What changed the equation was the Soviet invasion. And the vast Red Army that had just rolled and defeated the, the Germans, uh, the Nazi war machine, was now being turned on the Japanese. And the one rare place that tells the story honestly is a surprising one. That's the official U.S. Navy Museum here in Washington, D.C. That actually, if you go there, they say that the, the, the plaque says, this place says that the atomic bombs had lit, made little impact on the Japanese cabinet, but the Soviet invasion changed their thinking and led them, led to the surrender. You know, but if you can say that, the world, that the atomic bombs ended World War II, then you could say, well, they were cruel and they killed a lot of civilians, but they were necessary. They saved a half million American boys who would have been killed in an invasion, according to Truman. And uh, so that they, they actually are moral to do this because they saved American and Japanese lives as horrible as they were. That's the best of founding myth of the American empire in many ways. Uh, and, you know, and the opposite is just the case, and people knew it. And the thing that's so disturbing about it is that we knew it beforehand. If you look at the American and British intelligence reports, they've been saying for months that a Soviet invasion would convince all Japanese that defeat is inevitable. The Soviet invasion will end the war. So Truman uh, knows that the Japanese are trying to surrender. He writes in his, uh, 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 he, he calls the intercepted July 18th telegram the telegram from the Jap emperor asking for peace. He gets the assurance from Stalin that the Soviets are coming in on time, and Truman writes in his journal, Stalin will be in the Jap war by August 15th. Finny Japs when that occurs. He writes home to his wife, Bess, the next day. The Russians are coming in. We'll end the war a year sooner now. Think of all the kids who won't be killed. You know, so, so the, the truth of this is that the United States knew they didn't need to use the bomb and that there was no excuse for this, but they wanted to send a message to the Soviets that if the Soviets interfered with U.S. plants in the Pacific or in Europe, this is what they're going to be getting, and that's exactly how the Soviet leaders interpreted it in 1945. Exactly how Stalin and those around him interpreted it, that this was a, meant as a warning. And, it's, uh, this, and the Soviets understood this better than anybody else because the Japanese had asked them to intercede on their behalf to get them better surrender terms. And the Soviets had concluded that the Japanese were desperate to surrender by July, June and July of, of 1945. So they knew that the atomic bomb was not necessary to win the war against Japan. And they drew the conclusion, which is the one that many historians draw, that the real target was actually the Soviet Union more than Japan. 
Indeed. We, we've got just a few minutes left. I'm, I'm delighted to hear the Navy Museum gets it right, although I'm disappointed to learn that there is a Navy Museum. Uh, what about textbooks? What about teachers in schools? Is it, is it being taught correctly? Uh, I mean, I know you've got it right in the, in the untold history, but what about the, the textbooks that are being most commonly used in, in U.S. high schools? No, they're, they're still not getting it right. I mean, some of them do get it right, uh, and we put out the Young Readers book, the Young Readers edition of Untold History. The second volume is coming out in November. There can be four volumes altogether, and that's and we get we do, do speak in high schools and sometimes middle schools, uh, but it's a it's a real struggle. Uh, we try to get Untold History as an official text in the California system. But it would cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars to even begin to have a shot to to achieve that. Paid, so, paid for what? For lobbying legislator? What what is that money to, for? Yeah, it was lobbying. There was a firm out there that wanted to help us in this, and it just it was just not cost effective for us. We don't have that kind of money to to throw around for for this. But uh, high school textbooks, actually, you know, Oliver and I began our project in part when he because he saw his daughter's high school textbook and saw that it was repeating the same misinformation and lies about history that he had learned when he was in high school decades earlier. And so we, we did untold history, partly because we wanted to make sense out of George W. Bush and to show that Bush was not an aberration, that Bush was actually consistent with American foreign policy, over decades, certainly since the start of the Cold War. Uh, and so what we did, we started in the 1890s, and we traced it through the first one to 2012. Uh, but those patterns you know, also continued under Obama. That's what was more disappointing. As Ari Fleischer said, uh, Obama is, Obama's second term is really George W. Bush's fourth term. He said people don't understand that, but Obama, while not giving Bush credit, has continued most of Bush's policies when it comes to surveillance, you know, and, and uh, the use of the Espionage Act. And the Espionage Act, between, 20, between 1917 and 2008, three people were indicted for leaking under the Espionage Act. Obama indicted eight people in his short stint in the White House, um, you know, and then the, the doubling down on the invasions of Iraq, even Af- Afghanistan caving in, to the pressure there, Libya. Um, well, if, if he campaigned on escalating in Afghanistan as he did, and then he tripled it, and that war by every measure yeah. is his more than Bush's and Trump's put together, I, I don't know that it's caving in to, you know, his evil people who've put themselves around him. This, this is this is what he campaigned on doing. We, we've, we've got just about a, a minute left, Peter. So, yeah, um, Obama was ganged up on, though. He asked for other alternatives. And you had Clinton, Petraeus, uh, and other generals uh, telling him that we needed to uh, double the the forces there. So, yeah, he he did uh, double American forces there. He went, uh, I forget the exact numbers now, but uh, the, the situation under Obama got in some ways worse in Afghanistan, and you're right, he did campaign on that. He said he's against dumb wars, and he considered Iraq to be a dumb war. 
Right. Which... But not <laughs> Afghanistan. And look what happened with uh, Libya. Uh, yep. you know, and he was ready to bomb Syria had not uh, Vladimir Putin intervened and, to give him a, an alternative, a way out, and, and which was in some ways millions. disappointing because it would have been a huge victory for the anti-war movement because Congress, because of our pressure, was, gonna, was about to vote to deny him the authorization to bomb Syria. Uh, but, but Putin intervened and, and saved his skin in some sense. Well, I think the fact that uh, Congress was going to vote no is why Congress didn't vote. Uh, we'll have to go into that next time. Peter Kuznick is professor of history at American University. Pick up the untold history of the United States and all of his other books. Peter, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. It's always fun. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.